Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, what is artificial intelligence? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With these IPI Policy Basics podcast episodes, we are building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or for those who need to get caught up to speed on a particular issue. I'm joined today in studio by IPI resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, and by IPI research fellow, Dr. Dan Gerritsen. And today we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. So, Dan, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Uh, artificial intelligence has been sort of all the rage, it seems to me, in 2023. Uh, there's been a lot of attention on both ChatGPT, the large language model that generates text content, and also some artificial intelligence engines that, that will generate images. Mm -hmm. uh, you can tell them to draw me a picture of a Shetland sheepdog in the style of Vincent Van Gogh, and all of a sudden, pop, there it is. It's kind of amazing. Um, we at IPI do a lot of work on technology policy. We follow technology policy issues closely and carefully. And so it makes a lot of sense for us to address and talk about this whole issue of artificial intelligence. So we want to do sort of an explainer today on artificial intelligence. What is it? What is it not? What should our attitude toward it be? What should government's attitude toward it be? Et cetera, et cetera. So as we approach artificial intelligence, I have a sort of an attitude that that's an umbrella term that actually describes more than one thing. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, it encompasses a bunch of uh, sort of approaches, mm -hmm. algorithms, technologies, and it's also not new. It's been uh, the the ideas have been around for probably close to a hundred years. Hmm. Uh, you know, back back to the thirties and forties of uh, the nineteen hundreds. So, so when we say artificial intelligence or AI, AI, at the most basic level, what are we talking about? Basically, we're talking about uh, computing devices, algorithms, and so forth that are able to do interesting projections, interesting analyses that are at least beyond, you know, now beyond the ability of, of people previously beyond their ability to do it in any reasonable finite time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, computing algorithms and so forth, then we can break those down a bit. Uh, but basically, you know, algorithms, code. You know, we long ago came to terms, I mean, really long ago, like 30 years ago, we came to terms with the idea that computers can process mathematical equations, you know, orders of magnitude faster than the human brain can, right? Exactly. So it shouldn't be surprising that computers and algorithms can actually process language in the same way or analyze data in the same way that is just orders of magnitude faster than the human brain can, right? Right. Um, it turns out that the human brain is a miraculous thing, but it's not necessarily as fast as certain topics as a computer is. And yet still faster in certain other ways. Sure, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, at, at some point we end up in this really interesting philosophical discussion about what is the distinction between like human intelligence and machine intelligence, right? We may not get there today. Right. But it seems to me that a, that a lot of what's going on with artificial intelligence is you know, we used to talk about data mining, and the idea was that you could create machine algorithms that would look at huge amounts of data and would look for patterns. 
and find patterns that the human brain would either never find or would take a thousand years to find, right? Yep. And to some degree, these artificial intelligence and large language, we, I suppose we should dis, we should define what a large language model is, but to some degree, these things are just extensions of that ability to do like data mining. Uh, and in many ways, when data mining first came on the scene, people referred to that as artificial intelligence right, right, as well. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, artificial intelligence happens to be, I think, the term applied to the most advanced form of uh, computing ability we have today. Whatever it happens whatever, to whatever be. Whatever today right? happens yeah. to be. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so who is using artificial intelligence? So uh, in many ways, almost everybody. So first of all, you know, uh, as I mentioned, this has been a concept that's been around for, you know, almost 100 years now. Uh, we had the computers developed in the early part of last century, or, and you know, a lot of the ideas for them even dated, you know, predated that. Mm -hmm. um, and as as people developed, I think um, uh, I had heard somewhere, and it was on a podcast, I believe, with Mark Andreessen, where he claimed that the first concepts for neural nets, which is kind of a, a lot of what underlies uh, a lot of the current artificial intelligence algorithms, were developed in the 40s. So these are uh, these are ideas people uh, as computers were developed early on. There were feelings that, oh, we will have a machine that will think as well as a human in five, 10 years from now. It's always five, you know, actually probably further out early on, but uh, it's always in the near future. And of course, that that particular thing acting like a human has been more and more elusive until somewhat recently. So you can envision something b before you necessarily have the computing power to do it. And so there may be a sense in which. You know, the reason it seems like things like chat GPT and AI have like popped in out of nowhere is that we finally have the the everything in place, the convergence right in place where we have the computing power, the storage power. We have the network and we have the and accumulation of data. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point also, uh, buddy, about the question of who's using this. You know, early on, it was, you know, a lot of develop, uh, a lot of sort of science uh, researchers, you know, technology researchers just doing basic algorithms, you know, uh, linear regressions or things like that, which were, were thought of in some ways as early forms of AI, which wouldn't even qualify today. Um, early, you know, as we got into, say, 70s and 80s, I mean, I mentioned neural nets early on. That was not very productive for years. In fact, I remember when I was in uh, uh, in college uh, a few decades ago, shall we say, um, there was, uh, you know, neural nets were talked about, uh, but the main focus of AI research was something called decision trees. Mm -hmm. uh, and decision trees are basically very complex, you know, if then kinds of things like if, if this condition is true, then we choose this branch. If this one's true, we choose this other branch. And it's just enormously complicated uh, um, decision trees that were very algorithmic. I mean, it was just, you know, uh, J Japan, I know, put a ton of money into those kinds of things, as did the U.S. in uh, the 80s and 90s. Now, I'm not consciously using artificial intelligence. I'm not going out and saying I need to get something with this. But my guess is, since I have an iPhone, an iPad, a computer, other things, I'm guessing I'm probably using artificial intelligence in some ways that I'm not even aware of. Most of what you're doing in terms of uh, seeing online for, let's say you go shopping somewhere mm -hmm. and you are uh, looking at something. I'm sure we've uh, you've had the experience where you're you're shopping for something on Amazon and then you go to you know the Wall Street Journal and suddenly you're seeing ads for the category you're looking at. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pattern matching going on there where they're seeing, hey, you were looking at something, or it may not even be what you were looking at, but it's something that is kind of adjacent to it. Um, the, that's AI or the algorithms in the background doing a lot of pattern matching. It's like, oh, buddy's looking at this 
funny, another, you know, of a few thousand other people who looked at these kinds of things also looked at these things. Maybe Bud would be interested in this. That's a really good illustration. Um, uh, those of us who are users of, for instance, like Microsoft Outlook also have had the experience where recent versions of Outlook will offer suggested responses to emails, right? So you'll get an email and you go to reply and it'll pop up various possible suggested responses. So yep. it, it's, it is clearly analyzing the content of the email you're responding to and it is coming up with some sort of suggested responses. That's got to be some form of pattern matching in AI as well, right? And, and I mean, what you're talking about right there is actually an example of a large language model at work. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, you know, the, it's analyzing the patterns in language you know, the large yeah. language models, you've got the large language database and developing what uh, what's Tom likely to say next. Yeah. And let's suggest. So that when I go to Twitter, I oftentimes see Twitter saying, here's some people you might be interested in following. Yep. Is Twitter looking at what I'm looking at or things I've posted or something and says, because of that, we're making connections. And these might be people or groups that you're interested in. Yes, exactly right. Um, there, there, that is all AI algorithms in the background. In fact, I would say AI algorithms have had their biggest impact in areas, you know, like consumer preference uh, identification and and sort of uh, a lot of the, the content management associated with meeting consumer needs on websites. So so, so we've, we've talked about algorithms several times. Let's talk about what an algorithm is, right? Yep. So an algorithm is simply computer code. Yep. Um, so it's a program. Exactly. Um but such such programs can be either static or dynamic, it occurs to me, right? Like you could write a program and say, here's what I want you to do. In, in, every, in every circumstance where these conditions are met, I want you to do this. Yep. But what we hear about AI is that the algorithms are learning, That's right? right. That's in fact, right. when you go into chat GPT, it gives you a response and it asks you to evaluate the response. Mm -hmm. And it may even give you an opportunity to reproduce the, the prompt Yep. And which one of these two did you like the best? So when we when we talk about this is machine learning, right? Yep. When we talk about machine learning, is the algorithm itself changing? So uh, I think there's probably a little bit of ambiguity there, but in okay. general, I would say no. Okay. Yeah, the algorithm is not what it's doing; is it's changing the essentially the factors that make it decide on one uh, particular direction or another mm. um, it, are what's changing. So the, so, so the creator of the algorithm, the algorithm is not running off on its own, essentially rewriting itself necessarily. Mostly, most of the time, no, although it's, I know there's people playing with that idea as well. But, it, but, but it, uh, it's essentially just altering its database. Yeah. I mean, so the way to think about that, so to your question on are, are these, uh, you know, kind of hard coded and so forth, the mm -hmm. early versions of AI, the decision tree approaches that I mentioned yep. were stuff where things were built out in laborious detail and, they, and every part of that uh, branch was, was encoded in. Yeah. Um, and, but the neural nets, what, what's interesting about that is a lot of it is, you know, think about a neural net as essentially an array of, of processors, neurons, um, is, you know, hence the analogy there, mm. um, that are relating to each other and they're exchanging data and, you know, the, um, a, a an input comes into one processor and, and it's getting a whole array of data and it's evaluating how to process that into the next layer. Those weightings on how it kind of uh, correlates data across those connections are what's being trained over time as you as you as they uh, analyze the data and build up the uh, the intelligence. And that must be software because I mean we had you know thirty years ago we had Cray supercomputers that were that were just a whole bunch of processors right right but 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 no one thought of a Cray supercomputer as artificial intelligence or as a neural network. 
depending on who you talk to, I think probably some did. But, oh, okay. Uh, okay. But, yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, but but the thing to your point on that, most of the most of the processing done on like the Cray supercomputers was uh, you would vectorize a a problem, an algorithm. And so it's like you're able to say, I need to solve this big problem, but I can break that down into discrete calculations. Like you know, I'm calculating. Uh, a gas, just as an example, yeah. you know, gas, many molecules and so forth. Well, you know, I can have one processor focus on this, focus on this molecule over here and another processor focus on another molecule over there. And those algorithms are well-defined. I'll just, I'm just breaking up the calculational process versus today's neural nets, where it's actually a very correlated kind of thing where what happens on one processor affects how the other processor actually calculates the outputs. Okay. Um, and, and those weightings and those factors driving those decisions are being trained the machine learning aspect mm -hmm. into the uh, into the system as we process the data and uh, improve our ability to predict. How does the machine learn? I, I hear machine learning is as a key aspect of this, but how does the machine learn? There's uh, there's a couple techniques. The most uh, the most uh, common approach is, is something called supervised learning. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, the we 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 know kind of what the out the answer needs to be on a certain data set. And we have a whole bunch of data uh, leading into that. We say, okay, so let's do the calculation with our data set. Let's put in our initial set of weightings and factors uh, relating to the uh, algorithm across the neural net, for example. Um, and let's have it run the process. So let's, you know, let's feed it an image of a dog. And does it tell me at the end of it that it's a dog? No, it told me it was a cat or whatever. Uh, you know, wrong. Uh, and then it, you feed it again and, it, you know, it's adjusting different things and it says, ah, it's, I think it's a 75% chance it's a cat and 25%. Okay. So still wrong. So you're kind of grading it down and so forth. And eventually it gets to the point where it, no, now it flips and uh, I feed it an image of a dog and it's, you know, most of the time it's getting it right. And, and it's a, uh, you keep sort of doing that training. You have a huge training set of images of dogs um, and other things. So you want to, you know, you want to make sure it's uh, testing against all of it. And uh, eventually it's, it's, you get to the point where on that training set, it has learned to very commonly identify the dog. Uh, and now you feed it a new set of images without sort of doing this sort of grading at the end. And you just say, okay, how does it perform? And you find that over time, you know, you've, been, you've improved the algorithm to the point that it's able to actually uh, be right. So if I'm looking at, say, uh, images of a, of a bicycle race. Yep, and then I start seeing ads popping up for bicycles, or for maybe headgear to wear on a bicycle, or gloves, or something of that nature. If I go and click on that, yep, and say I want to take a look at those gloves or that or that little mirror that comes up, does the is that is does the machine learn from that and say ah I did get some of these things right and I'll give him some more of those options. Right, exactly. I mean, and that's exactly what's happening in a lot of these kind of algorithms that are watching shopping behavior, surfing behavior, and so forth is um, it's looking at you. You looked at an uh, image of a bicycle race and then you went off and bought a bicycle. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, that's an interesting, you know, data point. Maybe the next person who looks at this is going to do the same sort of thing. Or maybe you went off and bought a, uh, I don't know, water bottle. Um, it's like, okay, a little bit of an, a different angle there, but Hey, it turns out we've got a significant subset of people that, uh, you know, saw the fitness equipment and got uh, triggered by the, the water bottle image or something like that and, uh, bought that instead. So the, the machine is uh, the algorithm or somebody is learning from me when I respond to that. And it says, ah, I did something right. Yep. And so now I'm going to do, so it doesn't have to be a programmer that says necessarily you've done something right. It could be the consumer out there. That says well, that's that. exactly right. That's exactly right. So if it's guessing, Hey, buddy might be interested in this. You know, and in fact, you do click on it, you know, there's enough signal there with enough, you know, thousands of people sort of clicking on whatever that is. It's like, 
oh, okay, hey, I guessed right for these people that this was something they'd be interested in. Let me try that again on future um, uh, shoppers. So that's clearly a form of pattern recognition. Yep. But it, honestly, it seems like kind of a primitive rudimentary form of pattern recognition when you compare it to some of the other things going on. Like when you sit down at ChatGPT and you say, uh, write a fundraising email for a libertarian nonprofit organization riffing off of the theme of the summer heat. Mm -hmm. And then 15 seconds later, this thing has, has spooled out this 11 paragraph email that is perfectly formatted. Uh, that really seems like there's some magical spark there as opposed to just saying, I notice you've been browsing on computer monitors. Let me start recommending some computer monitors to you. And, yep. and I think part of what we need to understand, and I think part of what we want our listeners to understand, I mean, this is not a, it's funny, this is not a philosophy podcast, <laughs> although, although, we although can't Dr. Matthews and I are both very interested in philosophy. He has a PhD in philosophy. He's taught philosophy. I've studied philosophy of religion. So yep. we're really interested in the philosophy part of this. But I, I think the, the point we want to make is that when you see something that appears to be original thinking and creativity, what you're actually seeing is simply an advanced form of pattern recognition and pattern reproduction. It, it has more in common with... I notice you've been looking at you've been looking at shoes, so I'm going to serve up advertisements for shoes. Then it does a poet who is sitting outside looking at a sunset and writing a poem. Is that okay. right or is that wrong? I think that's probably right. Okay. Um, the thing that's the thing that makes today why it's been so important now um, is you know think over the last 20, 25 years the main thing that's happened is we've developed this enormous database that we call the internet mm. that is now widely accessible. Um, and you know, all the data that that links to. So we have this enormous amount of data, lots of articles, writing, we've got people writing in uh, social media and chat GPT or, you know, any of the other large language models are able to pull in that data. So they have this huge database, incredibly fast computing computers, tons of, of uh, uh, memory available to them. Mm. And they can process these at a scale that just simply hasn't been imaginable up to now. Yeah. And so to think of what's going on there where you're writing that fundraising letter and you say, hey, riff off the sunset or whatever the case mm -hmm. may be, is it's got this enormous, you know, millions and billions of uh, pages or probably trillions, really, of pages of text out there of examples of people writing different things. And some of it had nothing to do with sunsets or uh, fundraising letters and some of it did. But, you know, it pulls from that together. And then, you know, it, you can think of on web searches, for example, for probably, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, even you type something and it's auto sort of suggesting it's like autocomplete, oh, right? Yeah. This is like autocomplete on a larger scale. Okay. You type a few words and it's like, hey, I've seen this before and I've got some probability weightings here and I might be a little random about it, but I'm going to guess that he's got a very small chance probability of going down this direction. So that's what I'm going to write. So in the best case scenario. Yep. Artificial intelligence helps us do what we're wanting to do and perhaps helps helps move it along at a faster pace or gives us ideas. Those of us of a certain age remember 2001 A Space Odyssey, <laughs> where how the computer... I, I, knew, I knew he was going to yeah, bring up how the computer. <laughs> I knew it. ...goes a bit further. 
Yep. Are we are we concerned that at some point uh, the 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 models the AI gets so proficient that it can go off on its own in some ways that we that are derogatory or destructive rather than instructive and helpful. Certainly possible. And, and I would say what's what's really going on there is the computer is is, you know, making different uh, decisions or uh, um, uh, assessments of what's going to happen next and doing its best to uh, respond appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, but it's still just an algorithm. It's it's still just sort of assigning probabilities and so forth. And sometimes it may be wrong. And therefore, it may come up with content that was ridiculous, that wasn't what you wanted, or even harmful. Maybe it uh, starts spewing hate speech or something of the sort. Um, uh, might be, you know, pulling in content you didn't want. Or on the other hand, it could be coming up with something brilliant, some incredibly poetic sort of thing. But it's it's a probability game. It's not. It's not a. The computer itself is not inserting any intelligence into the uh, process. It's just doing a statistical. Um, algorithm that it's running in the well, background. Well, and, and in fact, to, to go back to Dr. Matthews, uh, Hal 9000 example, Hal was just following instructions, yep. right? He didn't make any decisions. He didn't alter his mission. It turned out that he'd been, look, I'm calling him he, right? Yeah, exactly. That, that the computer had been given a different set of instructions than the crew thought. Right. And it was, and, it was and, given and internally contradictory. Yes. Discussion. Yes. And all Hal was doing was following instructions. Right. So. Or figuring out the best way it could to resolve those yes, internal contradictions. Exactly. Right, yeah, right. Which raises the question, can artificial intelligence make value judgments now, or do you think they will be able to at some time in the future? So that depends on what you define as a value judgment, right? So if you ask it a question and it does this probability and comes up with a recommendation based on its probability, and you decide what you know whether or not to follow that. Did it make a value judgment, or did it just do a calculation and come up with something that then you decided to say, "Oh, this is I should go." You know, I, I asked it if I should go off and start this company, and it said, "Yes." Well, that's what I'm going to do, or should I marry this person, or whatever? Is that a value judgment that it made? It's just doing a calculation, uh, and you're and you're deciding. So the way I think about it is, there's a lot of things that computers can do, and there's still a human that has to then interpret it. Now, where you might go is like, okay, is a, is a human getting it to the point where they're going to say, oh, I, I trust this so much, I'm just going to turn the decision making over and I'm in fact going to give it the ability to control some device, you know, a car, um, and because uh, I trust its decision making. Um, then you start to give it some real world uh, autonomy, but it's still doing it based on an internal computation. It's not developed its own goals per se, except for those that are programmed into it by the humans setting it up. So your illustration uh, reminds me of self-driving cars, Mm -hmm. which is essentially that's what you're doing in a self. I mean, in theory, if you have a system of self-driving cars that is robust and reliable, that's what's going on. They're making decisions. There's got to be an algorithm making decisions based on the input that it's receiving from its various sensors. Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, at the end of the day, what's making self-driving cars possible today is they have. Uh, you know, the, A, the compute power and the storage and all the rest, but they're building up this database of traffic situations. They've had cameras running on roads, uh, you know, behind these vehicles for now, what, 15 years um, and collecting data on what happens at an intersection. You know, how likely is it that a person standing this way on the side of the road is going to decide to step into the crosswalk? Uh, how likely is it that that car that pulled up to the uh, stop sign there is 
not going to, it's just going to roll it and move on into the intersection. And do I need to be prepared for that? Mm -hmm. They have now an enormous database and it's getting larger all the time of these situations that feed the models for how it's going to predict what's going to happen. This reminds me of, of any number of science fiction movies where the human was going up against the machine. Yep. And the way the human defeated the machine was the human realized that the machine is trying to predict what a rational actor would do. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so the only way to defeat the machine is to come up with a strategy that is irrational <laughs> or something that a human, that a rational actor would never do, right? You've got to somehow surprise it. Right. You know, we've been, we've been peppering you with questions, but I want to, as we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to just sort of share your thoughts about what our attitude should be toward AI, both as consumers and as, and as um, actors in the economy. Yep. And also um, what the attitude of public policy and government should be. Yep. Uh, so, you know, just uh, attitude oh. of consumers. My perspective on this, this is an incredibly powerful tool. This is a productivity enhancer or has the potential to be much, much greater than any tool that we've had to date. I mean, one could have said that at any point along the way, sure. but this is this is just continuing to ratchet up. And we've reached a point where these are now incredibly useful tools, writing the fundraising letters. Sure. Um, doing the decision support on, you know, how to set up an internal manufacturing process, even leading into processing research results. So it's an incredibly powerful tool. And it is to the point where we, it, the algorithm, or I should say the, the data and algorithms are so sophisticated that we don't really know kind of what those weightings were on those neural net, um, you know, uh, neurons that I mentioned or anything like that. We don't know what those are. We don't know exactly how it's made its decision. But we've now done it enough that we know that it's making interesting and useful decisions. Um, and uh, and that becomes something that we can start to apply and use. I would say there's still a buyer beware issue, right? So if you if you uh, ask it to comment on some issue of public policy, it's it's only pulling on the data it has available. And maybe it's all read all uh, viewpoints from a specific uh, political standpoint. Um, and it's going to tell you, you know, parrot that back at you. Or maybe that's 95% of what's read. And, you know, uh, we all know about different policy positions that uh, that are in the minority. They're not represented in the data set. So it's not represented in what's given to you. Mm. I would say that's not any different. I mean, in, in many ways, uh, uh, as educated consumers, hopefully we've been aware of that for forever in the media, uh, the media bias, all the rest, and have been similarly trying to apply a critical thinking attitude. I know that's not the case. In some ways, it's again, you've really just got to bring your critical thinking skills to this can be useful. You can find out stuff very quickly, but don't check your brain at the door. Um, and the students that basically ask uh, ChatGPT to write them an essay and just turn that into the professor, um, you know, sometimes they'll be lucky and they'll get a great essay and they'll get a great grade and sometimes they'll get garbage. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I was listening to another podcast a few weeks ago and they were speculating that we're going to get back to the point where you have to write your essays in class. Yeah, because yeah. you can't be trusted to do it. it, it that, that AI may mean the end of homework, because the only way we can tell that you're actually doing the work originally yourself is by doing it while you're in class rather than when you're at home. But on the flip side of that, so that's the downside at some levels, like, you know, maybe maybe the students are taking advantage of this. But today's students are growing up with just an enormous wealth of knowledge and resources at their disposal. They have any question on something they can ask ChatGPT and uh and start to come up to speed. I've been using it for programming myself in mm. my own company. Um, and uh, as a tool for developing the software, it's incredible. You know, just ask it what I want to do. And suddenly I've got a, a function that's uh, 
you know, 90% right or does 80% of what I need it to, that's way better than me spending two days figuring out what that, uh, to get to that 80 or 90% on my own. So Dan, uh, there's a couple more things that I think are really important for us to talk about. Yep. First of all, there's always a, a social fear of new technology and new innovation. Yep. That because, because new technology, new innovation, it does disrupt, right? But you could go all the way back to the movie Metropolis. You could go all the way back to the very beginning of robots. In fact, you can go back to the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, well, the problem with this new loom is it's going to put people out of work, right? <laughs> well, let, I'll, I'll jump in on that sure. because... The problem, as Tom points out, when there's a social fear, there are politicians who will want to jump in and take political advantage of that for self-serving purposes, or they they may in fact share the social fear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. always this concern. There's, I mean, look when the uh, when the car came along, it put the horse and buggies out of business, right? <laughs> when electricity came along, it put the street lamps out of business, right? Yeah. So. Every time you have an innovation like this, I mean, we have to acknowledge that it, it is disruptive. There, there are people that, you know, stuff they are doing now will not be something they'll be doing in a few years. Right, exactly. Can they be retrained? Can they uh, right. take up new skills and so forth? In many cases, some of those are generational transitions. Exactly. And, um, and it, but it does strike me that the difference between digital technology and sort of analog industrial revolution technology is that the digital changes happen faster. And so you, you're right when you had like industrial revolution kind of stuff that that was generational, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you have Uber and Lyft come along and it puts taxi drivers out of business. Yep. You know, and so I think we have to acknowledge that these kinds of technological changes, they are disruptive. But the history of such innovations is always that they, they make society wealthier and more productive. And so they should be welcomed rather than feared. Is that correct? Do you agree with that? That, that is definitely my viewpoint is that, uh, you know, this is a, um, these are tools. The, mm -hmm. you know, the plow was a tool. The, uh, you know, the wheel was a tool probably before that. I don't mm -hmm. know how that went. <laughs> but, uh, um, but these are tools that have made us more productive. And AI is another one of those tools that... Uh, has this enormous potential for uh, uh, productivity improvement, mm -hmm. disruption. Um, you know, as you say, you know, the computer in the 80s uh, disrupted a lot of jobs. And there's a lot of jobs that exist that don't exist now that did then. And yet people are doing more creative and interesting things and uh, sure. creating, uh, you know, more exciting products. When, when it got when it got to the point where you could do desktop publishing on your computer. Yep. It put some printers out of business. And a lot of printers had graphic design departments, mm -hmm. and those departments went away because the customers were showing up with already designed stuff. They just <laughs> needed the printer to print it, right? Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, we, we, we don't want to be Pollyannish and say that no one ever gets harmed by these kind of these kind of revolutions, but we also should take the bigger perspective and understand that these sort of technological innovations and revolutions they, they always result in a society that is more productive and that is wealthier. Now, I want to go back to the point Dr. Matthews was making a second ago, which is the problem is government tends to respond to the people who are afraid rather than to the people that are optimistic. So right. is, isn't there a great danger? Uh, you know, we did a policy-based episode on the idea of permissionless innovation, 
versus the precautionary principle. Yep. And isn't this a perfect example of that, where here's something new and scary, and so politicians are going to want to address those concerns through regulation. I think, and I think it goes deeper than that. There's, you know, the whole, I'm sure you're familiar with the Baptist and bootlegger kinds right. of things. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who, you know, internalized uh, the, you know, Terminator movies and how, you know, in 2001 to the extent that they really do think these are potentially um, dangerous technologies. But there are also people who are like, you know, taking advantage of that, who can sort of concentrate, concentrate power, uh, bring more authority, you know, to themselves and so forth. You've got the uh, big tech companies that are investing heavily in this that have a, an interest in sort of keeping out competitors so that they, if they can say we're the only ones that should be allowed to uh, develop this technology because we know how to do it responsibly, um, they're going to be advocating it uh, as the bootleggers in the background uh, doing this. And, that, and so that's also, I think, what you're alluding to is the pattern there where the big players find government regulation useful because it keeps out smaller upstart competitors, right? Exactly. Because the bigger player can afford to, to comply with the regulation. Right. And, and you know, the story is we are helping protect consumers. We're the ones that are responsible. Right. We don't know what this sort of, uh, you know, uh, quack in his uh, basements you know, doing in terms of developing the model. So you need to make sure you're careful with that person, but we can do it right. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, it sounds good. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they benefit a ton from that. There's another, um, there's another sort of hallmark of our work. We've been working in IPI. We've been working on technology policy for more than 20 years. Yep. And one hallmark of our work and one observation we have made is that technology is almost always neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a matter of who is using it and what it's used for. That's right. right? And so I think we have to acknowledge that an unfree society could use AI to, from an authoritarian standpoint, to enslave their people, to take away their liberties, right? Yep. Uh, whereas a free society could use it to actually further empower people and enhance enhance their liberties. So, it, it and it, and I would say when you break that down even a little more, um, you know, the the unfree society might concentrate the use of that technology in the you know elites, uh, mm. the powerful. Versus the free society, it's like everybody's experimenting with it and somebody's come up with this great way to make new art and somebody else has come up with this great new way to make a new process. And it becomes this, uh, you know, market based uh, sort of people driven process of creating new ideas and innovations. It's, it's just it's just interesting to me, just sort of as a political philosophy standpoint, that we keep coming back to this issue of. The free society. Right. And it's like the free society has nothing to fear from change. The free society has nothing to fear from innovation. The free society has nothing to fear from revolution, technological revolutions, information revolutions, because the foundation is established. Right. The the foundation is established. Whereas if you live in a society. And and the other aspect is not only the foundation is there, but there's there are market forces allowed to work. Mm. To say, you know, if this is a bad outcome and as society, we don't like it, you know, we'll vote with our feet. We'll vote with, uh, you know, you know, in some cases we may get to the point of uh, as society sort of moving against something that's, uh, you know, uh, somebody creates the robo killer or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, we'll shut them down and uh, bring the the police force to bear. But 
we we sort of make those decisions uh, based on a market based process. Yes, yeah. I think when when I remember when the Soviet Union fell, we kind of fetishized the fax machine, right? There was this sort of there was this sort of legend that became established that the Soviet Union fell because of the fax machine because it could be used to send stuff. But that is not why the Soviet Union fell, <laughs> and, and and so I, ultimately, I think free societies. If you if you li- if you are blessed to live in a free society, technology and innovation can be a blessing. Yeah. And if you live in an unfree society, th- there, there's almost no technological revolution that can deliver you from the unfree society. Right. Right. Yeah. I, and I think what it comes down to is technology itself, like you said, is neutral. It's mm-hmm. you know it's the people developing the capabilities, the technologies, the rulers and elites that, that control it. Um, that can that can lead to uh, outcomes, you know, building the the killer robots, you know, the the war machine that's uh, that's saying, hey, we need to, you know, use these these devices to spread freedom around the world. When you know there's a, a ton of incentives driving that as well. Um, those are the things that we have to figure out how to uh, to manage. I mean, nuclear power had the nuclear bomb, so right. how do you you know how do you mitigate sure. that? That becomes a, a societal problem. But not one that we say, hey, let's shut down nuclear power. Well, I guess we did, but. Uh, <laughs> but. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so can we summarize by saying that those of us who are blessed in, to live in a free society can have the confidence that we have the tools necessary to deal with technological change and innovation like AI and that we don't need to be afraid? I, yes, I think in, in in broad brushstrokes, I would say that's correct. You know, do we need to watch out for those who might be displaced, and mm. do we figure out some way, you know, as a uh, uh, Western economy that we can try to help um, support those people? That's I think an interesting question for policy. Um, how do we how do we support that? But do we shut it down? My view on that is that all you're doing is basically concentrating power uh, and control of it in those that might have nefarious objectives and co-opt it to their purposes. Well, I'd like to thank uh, Dan Garrettson and Dr. Merrill Matthews for joining me today in the studio for this IPI Policy Basics podcast. You can find a lot more about technology policy at our website at IPI.org. I don't know that you'll find a lot about AI because it's too new, but we will address that, won't we? <laughs> we will address that in future episodes and in future content creation. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or Spotify or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.